Hello and welcome to The Buzz, a bank automation news podcast. My name is Whitney McDonald, and I'm the deputy editor of Bank Automation News. Joining me today is Seth Rudin, BioCatch Director of Global Advisory in North America. He discusses the CFPB's new open banking rule and its potential unintended consequences. Okay. Well, I think this new rule is intended to allow for third parties to create pathways on ramps to be able to acquire access to financial institutions, customers' accounts, and allow them to create opportunities for those customers to bring their accounts from one institution to another and to include the information that an individual has relative to um, uh, accounts payable, relative to automated payments, allowing them to automate more of their account migration um, from one institution to another, which essentially allows for consumers to have more choice and reduces the potential that they are reticent to migrate from one institution to another because of the challenges and inherent complications of setting up new accounts and creating the relationships on the counterparty. I think it's also imperative that we talk through what risks come along with this new rule. Um, Can you share a little bit about the unintended consequences that we're seeing here? Well, yeah, you know, we're not seeing anything yet. I I think that the problem is that we don't know what we don't know. It's it's the unknown unknowns that that tend to bite us. And people are going to create some interesting um, new products and new pathways for this information to be utilized. And they may do so with all of the best intentions. And those new pathways and services might help to facilitate the ease of um, of that migration, but it also might create potential opportunities for exploitation by bad actors. Fraudsters have a unique and really um, uh, unusually strong capacity for understanding how they can undermine, exploit, or otherwise take advantage of financial services and the pathways that they occupy. Um, And we are, you know, consistently seeing that aggregators have been undermined in this capacity for many years. Uh, I managed through uh, a handful of events in my career where an aggregator was the point of abuse and an aggregator was a area where a fraudster was able to acquire information about an account and leverage that information for performing fraud. And some of that had occurred within aggregators acquiring um, account logs, you know, just information about um, deposits and account balances, and that allowed the um, attacker to perform account takeover, um, compromise that data and link other accounts, you know, really take advantage of Um, of these services in ways that the developers of these technologies never anticipated. And so I think that's really what I want to drive home as the potential opportunity of exploitation that exists here. I think it's really important that financial aggregators recognize and realize that they're building a trust model 
and that that trust model can be exploited. And if an aggregator is providing easier access to a good or service by relaxing security controls as an trusted ecosystem participant, then they have an opportunity for exploitation. And as a result of that, it's important for them to be looking at the exposure that they're bringing to the table. And if their good or service has abuse in it, then that trusted um, that trust model may be losing some of its advantage. And as a result of that, um, it's important for that um, aggregator to be looking at creating um, the right kind of security controls and demonstrating that to market participants. And maybe that's an opportunity for them to put security as a competitive advantage ahead of just adoption. You know, we, we, we do need to be looking at the reliability of the service, because if the service finds that it is introducing new risk to the counterparty, then that service has the potential um, for being um, declined as a trusted participant in that model. And I think that's maybe one of the ways that we articulate to um, to the market. This is the reason why you need to be um, focusing on controls and not just adoption and looking at how their exploitation opportunities can be um, a uh, core component of an effective business model. Now, I know that you just said, of course, you don't necessarily know what those gaps are going to be. Is there any way that banks can prepare themselves any way to to avoid unknown gaps like that or anything that they can do on the tech side to put something in place in that? Well, it depends on who the developers are. And I think the the real question um, is if you are a developer and you're providing um, this kind of access to a third party, um, how are you developing the controls and rigor around understanding who the um, consumer claims that they are? Right. I think that's one of the areas that that we have some degree of confidence that we can be able to understand the areas of risk that we may be exposed to. Historically, I've I've um, I've, I've sometimes suggested this is uh, sanitizing the point of entry. Right. Um, putting a little bit of sunlight um, uh, on on the front door. Um, understanding um, what the potential risk is. So one of the things that we don't really do well in the United States at this moment is identity verification. It's very difficult right now. And, and a good example of that uh, is that when we went through the pandemic, a lot of stimulus was generated. And the amount of stimulus that was stolen by bad actors was at a record height. I, I don't even want to um, share some of the figures that I've heard because they're just um, eye-popping. Now, that said, it begs the question, well, how did that happen? And I think the answer is, well, you know, we've had so many different merchant breaches and so many different healthcare um, compromises and so many different areas where our personal information has been uh, compromised. And as a result of that, there is enough information floating around about me and you and, and all of us where we get a 
uh, a warning from a major organization um, telling us, you know, we're very sorry, we're going to offer you credit warning services, we're going to, you know, tell you all of uh, these things that happened. Um, and we, at this point, probably just neglect them, right? We, we don't have a lot of time to put into, well, what's the, the potential, you know, impact to me? And I'll tell you what it is. Unfortunately, identity theft now is um, is is peaking. You know, we're, we're seeing so much um, impact of identity theft at this moment that it's so common that you could just acquire enough information about somebody's identity, um, and this would be, you know, public information as well as non-public personal information, and be able to use that to apply for credit products, um, government. Um, safety net services and and the example of of a paycheck protection program or unemployment insurance is 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 that great example uh, and when you have this kind of thing that occurs here this allows for bad actors to exploit that information and use that to their advantage so you know knowledge-based authentication um, the ability for bad actors to leverage that information to exploit individuals is, you know, essentially at an all-time high right now. And because we're doing everything and everybody has the expectation that we're going to be doing everything remotely, now we've got this abuse that occurs and it's scalable for bad actors. And I think that's the area that we might have um, some concerns at this moment about the potential opportunity for exploitation here. And the other thing that I want to suggest um, is that some of the controls that we've been using lately, multi-factor authentication relative to, you know, using SMS um, or text messaging as, as one of those areas has been heavily exploited by bad actors lately as well. And so if if that's one of those primary controls or they're using email, which also has the ability for exploitation and abuse via social engineering, via malware, you know, we start to see where our controls aren't necessarily always up to the task. And I think those areas of identity abuse and um, and uh, essentially um, front door um exposure um, is where we'll see some opportunities for exploitation. And I'm not sure that um, as many institutions have an idea of what is necessary to begin to create those kind of controls to remediate the abuse potential that exists there. So I think that's where we're going to see, um, if I'm looking at my crystal ball, um, that's where we're going to see most of the uh, opportunity for um, bad actors to uh, exploit this new um, this new opportunity for uh, acquiring data and acquiring services. Now, I I know we talked about the risks and preparing for that the best that you can, of course, without knowing exactly what those are going to entail. Um, can we shift a little bit and talk about what those macroeconomic advantages of open banking might be? We know that um, the push to open banking. Um, create some efficiency gains. It can create opportunities where competition 
um, is uh, making a better marketplace, creating better products and services for consumers. That may reduce prices for consumers. It may increase the speed uh, that goods and services are acquired. Uh, and at scale, if entities are paid sooner, um, they can leverage the capital that's available to them. Um, economies can grow faster. They, they're pushed uh, closer to um, you know, that, that collegiate term that I love to use, which is their um, efficiency frontier. And that's one of those examples where financial engineering can tangibly grow markets. You know, that, that uh, better products and services serve people in, in new and interesting ways. And that can um, have the effect of reducing prices, speed up payments, distribution of, of those goods and services, and create more efficient markets. And, you know, that, that's the, uh, the economics 101 framework, I think. Something happened in Europe over the last few years. Um, it was called uh, PSD2, Payment Services Directive, uh, second iteration. And what this was is an opportunity to create um, greater open banking opportunities um, within the UK that, or I'm sorry, within the EU, I should say, which uh, allowed for your least uh, cost routing of, of goods and services and payments and in association for those goods and services. Uh, so essentially, you would be able to make a payment to a, um, a payee via any mechanism you wanted to. You weren't limited to, you know, one channel specifically. And what was built into that was a very interesting framework for managing fraud and, and risk, which was secure customer authentication. And what it said was that if you were leveraging a specific uh, platform and you had low fraud rates, then you would have low points of friction. However, if your fraud rate started to trickle up, then there would be some automatic capacity for greater friction to be initiated within the channel. And I think what's really interesting about that was that it automated, so back to the automation question, it automated the controls and the responsibility for uh, engineering those automations and those escalation of controls once a specific threshold was reached. But it also mandated additional fraud controls and additional authentication friction in areas where the Europeans understood that this would be an effective way to increase um, reliability within their framework. And I think that's maybe one thing that might be concerning for me relative to this rule is that I'm not confident yet that we have thought about all of those controls that are necessary and that we're going to be taking the existing framework of controls that we have here in this country and saying, you know, that might be good enough. Um, so there is an opportunity for some market participants to comment on this and to give some um, insight into what those controls uh, or, you know, uh, rules should look like. And if the impetus of market participants is to make money at this, it's unlikely that they're going to put emphasis on on controls that could create additional friction or create additional cost relative to implementing this rule. And I have some concerns uh, that this could lead to a 
uh, an outcome where we may not necessarily have created controls in alignment um, with market needs and just suggested that what we have today is good enough. And again, what I've seen um, in in my time is that there is still abuse within the system and that existing controls may not be sufficient always to create the right kind of um, deterrence um, to bad actors. And that's where I have some hesitation here and think that there might be uh, a better approach leveraging the models that exist um, across the pond. You've been listening to The Buzz, a bank automation news podcast. Please follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. And as a reminder, you can rate this podcast on your platform of choice. Thank you for your time and be sure to visit us at bankautomationnews.com for more automation news.